0: Welcome to the podcast of Scott Street MB Church. We hope you find this message inspiring and encouraging in your walk as a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, what a great morning we've already had together! Um, yeah, Tim and, and the band. Thank you so much for um, leading us in worship. Um, Carrie, thank you for joining us this morning and for praising God so fully. Um, it, was, it was a joy to just see her laughing with delight as we sang praise to God, um, and the kids too, um, taking us out with the palm branches, and what a beautiful um, time we've already had together. Uh, I've been away for two two weeks, as many of you know, and I was actually in Paraguay, where many of you are from. Uh, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to share right now, but it's clear that so many people are interested in how my trip was. And so I gave David a few pictures um, from the trip, and I just want to say it was even better than I anticipated. Both of my parents were born in Paragu- Paraguay. Um, my dad lived there, and coming out of Paraguay have shaped who I am. And so it was incredible to go. I don't know um, yeah, what your experiences with your, your parents are, but growing up, I always was asking my dad about when he was a kid, and and he would give short answers, but somehow when we were out there, he was an open book just sharing his life with us, and um, it was just such a beautiful time together as a family, um, and so I want to thank you for your prayers, for, for safety, and just for a good trip, and um, even through that trip, I went to church in Friesland, on the one Sunday, and you know what? It gave me such a love and appreciation for all of you, and for where you've come from as well. And so, um, not only did it make me thankful and and make me praise God for for the long heritage of faith that I have, but it also made me really appreciate who we are as a church family and, and how your history in that country has very much shaped who we are as a family as well. And so, yeah, it was just a really great time that that I had there. And and thank you for the excitement that you've had for me as well in the trip. Um, Yeah, if you're new here or have been away for a few weeks, uh, we're currently going through the book of Exodus together, looking at how God worked in and through his people, the Hebrews, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, showing them who he is, um, who he, the great I am, who their God is, and teaching them how to be a people who know their God and follow him closely, ultimately bringing them to a place where, they can, where he can dwell in their midst. Um, we're a few weeks into this series already, and so far we've seen that even in the midst of really hard and bleak times, times when we wonder where is God in all of this, God is still at work, moving and working to bring about his plan of freedom for his creation. The section we're looking at today is actually pretty long, covering four chapters, much more than we can go through in a deep way in one morning. But as I was preparing for this morning, reading and digging into these chapters, I couldn't help but be in awe of the God that we serve, and the way he makes himself known to us through scripture. Um, And so I I really wanted us to take time to read as much of this story as possible. So we're going to read through the story, stopping along the way to draw attention to what God reveals to us about himself, um, or talking through tricky bits that might cause us to question and wonder, who is this God of ours? And one thing we'll notice all throughout this section is that God wants to make himself known. Um, If if this were one of Mrs. Jansen's inductive Bible study classes, I'd have you open your Bibles and circle the phrase, you will know, um, and the word know, because we're going to see that all throughout this section. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob served and knew this God who promised to make them a great nation— Um, who promised to give them a land of their own and be present with them, but now he wants to show them more. In Exodus 6, verse 7, which was part of the passage looked at last week, we read that God said to his people, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians." And we hear in this section of scripture that God's covenant and promise is restated to them. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you. All the Egyptian gods whom you've been influenced by and known for the past 430 years, I will show you that they are nothing I am the Lord your God, and I will show you what life can look like when you live not under Pharaoh's rule, but under my rule. And this verse is beautiful. It's like a love letter from God to his people, but his people can't hear it. They've been too worn down by the brutality and slavery of their oppressors to even allow themselves to hope. And today is Palm Sunday, and, and we already, that video, the song, the kids, Kelly explaining to the kids, uh, it was beautiful. And, and on Palm Sunday, we shift our focus and we prepare to look to the cross. And I think that what God says here in Exodus echoes Jesus' words and sentiments as he prepares to take up the cross to bring freedom through the most radical act of love the world would ever see. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. The truth is that the Israelites during their time in Egypt don't really know this God of theirs, and those during Jesus' time still couldn't really grasp it either, but God's tender words to them are that they will know. He will know them and make himself known to them. And this idea of knowing God and God making himself known will be the driving force in a lot of what is to come. Even in the face of their rejection, their inability to hear God's message of hope for them, God moves forward for their freedom anyway. God is on the move. There's a bit of a seemingly random break in the story here, and we get the genealogy of of Aaron and Moses' family. And we're not going to spend much time looking at this, but I also don't want to just ignore it because it is here in Scripture. And it may seem a bit awkward for it to be placed kind of in the midst of of a, a story narrative rather than at the very beginning or at the end. But either way, something that I think it does is it gives legitimacy to Moses and Aaron. They aren't some mythical or fictional characters. They're real people who come from real family. And so in Exodus 6, um, it it says, It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, this same Moses and Aaron. We aren't reading through the list of names this morning, but it's interesting to note that if you look at the list, as far as we can tell, Moses and Aaron come from a line of ordinary people. There's nothing in their lineage and background that sets them apart as being extraordinary with special abilities. There aren't kings or prophets or even great leaders in their line. They're ordinary people who God sees and says, I want to use you to bring freedom Bring about my plan of freedom. And that's a great reminder to each of us of something that's come up a few times already in this series. That God has a plan and a purpose for us. Good works prepared in advance for us to do. You might think you're nothing special with no real abilities to make a difference. Moses thought the same. And in all honesty, not many of us, or likely any of us in this room, will do something so huge that it'll still be talked about thousands of years later. But if we've given our lives to God and are living in his kingdom, then each one of us has a role to play, however big or small, in bringing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And we shouldn't discount ourselves from obedience in using what God has given to us because we're ordinary people with no seemingly outstanding great abilities. God has a history of using the weak, unlikely, and least expected people to do his great works. This entire book is filled with stories of those ordinary people. And in case you're thinking, oh yeah, that's a great message for the young to hear— uh, we learn just a few verses later that Moses and Aaron were 80 and 83 years old during this time. So all you 80-year-olds out there, this message is just as much for you as it is for those sitting near the front here. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll move on now in Exodus 6. Um, it'll be on the screen, but if you want to open your, your Bibles to it as well, we're going to be looking through Exodus 6 to, to 10 today. Um, So Exodus 6, verse 28, says, Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites." And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Wow, that sounds big. (laughs) What does this mean? How is Moses going to be like God? This is God's response to Moses once again vocalizing his insecurities. Since I'm a poor speaker, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And it's easy for us to roll our eyes at Moses once again, for the third time, bringing this question to God. Why should Pharaoh listen to me? But it is actually a legitimate question. Pharaoh was not only believed to be a God-king himself— But he was seen as being responsible for holding the balance of universal order, maintaining the rule of order over the chaos that was waiting to envelop the world. If Pharaoh failed, all the world would suffer and descend into the unthinkable state of anarchy and chaos. Um, It's hard for us to really wrap our minds about one person holding that power in culture, but this was the role of Pharaoh at the time. This is whom Moses is facing, Pharaoh, thought to be born through divine conception and the representative of gods, holding all of creation in balance. Pharaoh is like a god, and Moses knows that it would take more than a mere man to meet him face to face as an equal. God is saying, Moses, stop. Why will Pharaoh listen to you? Because I will make you like God to him, and Aaron will be your prophet, your mouthpiece. Pharaoh won't see you, a mere man. He will see me through you, and I am God. It's not Pharaoh who's God. He's not the one who holds the universe in balance. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The signs and the wonders that are coming will make it clear to Pharaoh, Egypt, and the world that there is one true God, and that God is not Pharaoh. It's the great I Am, Yahweh, creator and sustainer of all things, who's actively at work in his creation, holding the universe together, even still today. And it's this God who is at work to bring Israel and all people out from under the rule of Satan and earthly masters and under his own perfect and loving rule, bringing them back into perfect relationship with himself, making himself known to them. This God is on the move. And in chapter 7, verse 5, we read again about knowing God. And this time it's Pharaoh and the Egyptians whom God says will know that he is the Lord. And we're reminded that back in chapter 5, Pharaoh scoffed at the mention of the Lord God, Yahweh, saying, who is the Lord that I should heed him? I do not know the Lord, and I won't do what he's asking of me. And here God says, you don't know me, but you will. You and all the Egyptians will know who I am. If we continue reading in in chapter 7, verse 8, We read that the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and I will become a snake, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. And so it begins, Moses and Aaron's first interaction goes just like God said it would. But in response to Aaron's staff turning into a snake, Pharaoh calls his wise men and sorcerers, who it turns out have the power to do the same. And in this interaction, it becomes clear that this isn't just a battle between God and Pharaoh, a man who thinks he is a god. Satan is at work here, and this battle is for something bigger, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Even though the sorcerers are able to conjure snakes just like Aaron did, Aaron's staff swallows up their staffs. Satan's head will be crushed, and even here it's shown that he will be defeated. God is on the move to make himself known, and he will win. The battle might be long yet, but its outcome is foreshadowed in this interaction. And it's important for us to remember that our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It wasn't between flesh and blood back then, and it isn't against flesh and blood for us today. When we see evil and injustice going on in the world, things that clearly go against God's will, whether that's governments, corporations, systems, or social movements, we need to remember that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, against people. It's against Satan and his hold. We are kingdom people, and our lives and our fight is all for the purpose of bringing God's reign more fully into this world, and that's a spiritual battle that we fight as we live out God's call to be salt and light in the world. And it's important for us to remember that the battle happening here is bigger than God versus man, God versus Pharaoh. This isn't God looking at the man, Pharaoh, and making Pharaoh his opponent, which is sometimes how we read this. There's language used here about Pharaoh's hard heart. And sometimes, when we read, sometimes in in this, we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart, that Pharaoh remained stubborn, that he's the one actively hardening his heart and remaining stubborn. But there are just as many times when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the thing that comes into question here is the matter of free will. Did Pharaoh have a choice? Could he have chosen to listen and turn to God? Or was it decided by him, for him, by God, from the very beginning? that he would never have that option, that God would go to battle with him, a man, and he would lose. We don't really have time to dig super deep into this, but when I was researching and studying it, I learned that our English translations use the same word for this idea of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the hard state of his heart, which is actually mentioned 20 times in chapters 4 to 14. It's it's repeated over and over again. But there are actually three different Hebrew verbs used that give different nuances to what's being said. And theologians argue and debate this issue of Pharaoh's free will with respected theologians standing on both sides of the issue. So I'm not going to assume that I know more than these men and women who have dedicated years of time looking into the issue. I will say, however, that scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the exact representation and image of God. It's through Jesus Christ, God entering his creation, that we finally see what God has been trying to tell us all along. Jesus said over and over that all the law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament, testify about him and that he fulfills it. He isn't in opposition To the Old Testament or coming with a different message than what he, the triune God, had during Old Testament times. Jesus has come to fulfill it and show us what we didn't know before, how to understand it and live it out. And because of this, it's important for us to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. From the very start, God gives us the freedom to choose to follow him or choose to go our own way. God doesn't control our choices, but he is sovereign over them. He knows what we will choose, when we will sit and when we will rise, and he's able to work all things for the good of those who love him. And all throughout the upcoming contest between God and Pharaoh, we see God displaying his power over the lowercase g gods that Pharaoh represents, making himself known to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. But we also see finely nuanced appeals to faith, chances given and missed, partial responses followed by reversals, but always with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to God's advances. God's desire is for Egypt to know him, but the battle here is really with Satan, and God knows that Pharaoh's heart is hard, and God will use his attempts to make himself known to Pharaoh, to show his mighty power and strength to his called out people and to the world. In his handbook on the Pentateuch, Victor Hamilton says the Lord's intention is not to leave behind in Egypt a bruised and bloodied Pharaoh, nor is the Lord's interest in leaving the Egyptian king breathless via an exhibition of miracles. The divine purpose is that Pharaoh and his people, to say nothing of the Israelites, will indeed acquire knowledge of the true God. To know the Lord as Lord means to recognize and submit to his authority. This is the choice that Pharaoh needs to make and is invited to make. Um, Exodus 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelt so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt, but the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart, and all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water from the river." I wish we could read fully through the next three chapters together. It's such a powerful and sobering, heartbreaking, faith-inducing story. And there's so much that we learn about God's love, patience, and how he works to defeat Satan in order to make himself known and bring us into relationship with him. And I encourage you to read through these chapters. But for the sake of time right now, I'll do my best to summarize and draw out some of the main points. Remember that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was believed to be a small g-god who was responsible for holding the balance of universal order. And it was believed that many, that the many gods of Egypt needed to be appeased so that that order could be maintained and the chaos waiting to envelop the world would be held back. Each of Egypt's gods had a rule over a specific aspect of this world order. It was Pharaoh's role to maintain the balance and order between the gods. His failure would result in the world descending into chaos. Um, In Richard Foster's study Bible, he comments that when Moses strikes the Nile, he strikes the first blow for the freedom of Israel, and his actions challenge Happy, the god of the Nile. Before it's all over, Yahweh will confront and vanquish many of Egypt's most important deities. The goddess Nut, whose sky he filled with thunder and hail. The god Shu, whose air he will blacken with gnats and flies. The goddess and protector, Emanut, who will be able to provide no protection for Egyptians against the boils that ravage their bodies. The god Geb, whose earth will crawl with frogs and locusts. The god Ra, whose sun will be blotted out, and, and many more. These signs and wonders that God does through Moses and Aaron progress in severity and impact. And it's interesting to note that even though the Egyptian magicians are able to replicate both the water turning to blood, as we, as we just read, and also the next one, the frogs coming up from the river, they aren't able to do what would actually be helpful and reverse the signs that God is performing, bringing the chaos back into order And we read that after the third sign, where God turned the dust of the earth into gnats, the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, but they could not. There were gnats on both humans and animals, and the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Chaos is descending, and even Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers are beginning to see and know and acknowledge the one true God. Then we see that in case the Egyptians think that this is just some ecological or environmental reasons, there are reasons for the chaos, some natural phenomenon that all of Egypt is experiencing, God begins to make a distinction between his called out people and the Egyptians, setting apart the land of Goshen where the Israelites live. Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. For if you will not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you, your officials and your people, and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, so also the land where they live. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people live, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I, the Lord, am in this land." Thus, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. And it's at this mention that we're reminded again of the Hebrew slaves for for whose freedom this entire epic battle is being waged. God's chosen and called out people through whom all of his creation will be blessed and through whom he will be made known, who were so downtrodden and far from knowing this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God of theirs that they could no longer even hope for freedom. The unfolding drama that we read here, the battle waged for Israel, happens without them even lifting a finger. And while gnats and flies invade the land, while all of Egypt's livestock become diseased and die, while festering boils cover Egypt's people and animals alike, when thunder and hail followed by locusts ravage the land, and thick darkness that can be tangibly felt descends, the Hebrews' only role is to watch and keep still. While their God fights, these small G gods of Egypt for them. Um, and this is where we'll stop today, mid-battle. God is clearly winning, but Satan has not yet given up. And even though we've read even though what we've read happened thousands of years ago, today on Palm Sunday, when we begin to shift our focus to Christ's journey to the cross, another epic battle to win the freedom of God's people. The question is, do you know God, this all-powerful, all-knowing, loving God who created you and wants to bring you freedom? Do you know him? To know the Lord as Lord means to recognize and submit to his authority, something that Pharaoh couldn't do. It means shifting from serving the masters of this world to serving God giving every part to him and singing the praises that he deserves. And just like earth and nature made him known in Exodus, we read in the New Testament that the whole earth groans to make God known. Yahweh, God Almighty, the creator of the earth and everything in it, will know his creation and be known by it as he brings freedom to his people. And in the absence of people shouting his praise and giving glory to his name, the earth he created will take our place and give testament to his power. This was true in Egypt. It was true in Jerusalem as God prepared again for battle to show us his great love and bring freedom to his people through the cross. And this is still true today. Our God is great and worthy of so much more than we could ever give him, and yet he chooses to love us, showing us unthinkable grace in response to our feeble efforts. Um, Tim and the band, if you can come up now. Um, Today as we enter into what's known as Holy Week, remembering the days leading up to Christ's death on the cross, let's have soft hearts that are open to God's grace and mercy. Let's be the ones who wave the palm fronds and shout praise, not the ones with hard hearts who look on with judgment, unmoved by the love we see. Let's not make the earth and the rocks cry out, but let's lift our voices as we work towards knowing this God who breaks the chains of bondage and brings us freedom and we're going to shift to the communion table right now, and, and what better way for us to to do that to um, yeah acknowledge the beautiful gift of grace that God has has fought to win for us, um, the freedom that He gives, and so as we as we make this shift to the communion table, um, yeah, let's start with with a moment of silence to actually reflect and. and ask God to soften our hearts for us to be open and aware of his movements for us to enter this time of of coming and celebrating his broken body and his poured out blood um yeah th- through praise and through worship let's not make the earth cry it out for us but but let's praise him as, as we come to the table together